chapter 1 in your Bibles. We will be looking at verses 35 through 51 this evening, a bit of a larger chunk. While we would all agree that salvation is by belief alone, and this church in particular has worked tirelessly to properly define the nature of belief to be more than just acknowledgement of the existence of God or even the authority, but of a personal appropriation of the truths of Jesus Christ to one's life, that does not change the fact that the nature of belief can be difficult to quantify. Certainly, belief is the qualification. Certainly, belief is an expectation that goes beyond just believing in the existence of God. But the nature of belief, can be a little more difficult. The reason for this difficulty is because we are all, as humans, very different. History speaks of men that knew there must be a God, so they diligently sought that God with all their hearts until they found Him. History speaks of men who weren't interested in the things of God until one day God found them. History speaks of men who thought they were serving God until one day they were confronted with the truths of God and realized that He was very different from the one that they thought they were serving. History speaks of those who came to God skeptically before being fully convinced of Him. In each case, we see different elements of the truth of God's Word is what drew the men individually. Some have been drawn by God's love. Others have been drawn by God's justice. Some by mercy, others by fear. Some have been drawn after years of knowing about God, but never actually knowing God. Others have been drawn from complete ignorance to saving faith in a relatively short period of time. In the final verses of the first chapter of John, we are confronted with four very different approaches to the same saving faith. These various experiences are not presented to confuse one's understanding of salvation, but rather to validate the reality that saving faith is not so much a process of step one, step two, step three, as much as it is a dynamic initiation of relationship between God and man. Now, as we begin this evening, let me just say right out that I am not attempting to make salvation a relative process. I'm not attempting to say that salvation has many roads, that there are many roads that lead to heaven. I'm not trying to to become subjective or relative in that sense. The Scriptures clearly teach that salvation is by grace, through faith, in the name of Jesus Christ alone. Acts 4.2 clearly states, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is None other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. But the human experience makes it very clear that different people with different experiences, different personalities and different backgrounds have found the truths of Jesus Christ in numerous different ways. This is the nature of belief and it is the nature of belief that we're going to see this evening as we look into the book of John. So look with me if you would. We'll read the whole passage and then we'll pick it apart. We'll begin in verse 35 and we'll read through verse 51. Again, the next day after, John stood and two of his disciples. 
And looking upon Jesus as he walked, he saith, Behold the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. Then Jesus turned and saw them following, and saith unto them, What seek ye? They said unto him, Rabbi, which is to say, being interpreted, Master, where dwellest thou? He saith unto them, Come and see. They came and saw where he dwelt, and abode with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. He first findeth his, excuse me, tenth hour. One of the two which heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first findeth his own brother, Simon, and saith unto him, We have found the Messiah, which is being interpreted the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. And when Jesus beheld him, he said, Thou art Simon, the son of Jonah. Thou shalt be called Cephas, which is by interpretation a stone. The day following, Jesus would go forth into Galilee and findeth Philip and saith unto him, Follow me. Now Philip was of Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip findeth Nathanael and saith unto him, We have found him, of whom Moses in the law and the prophets did write, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said unto him, Can there any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip saith unto him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and saith of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no guile. Nathanael said unto him, Whence knowest thou me? Jesus answered and said unto him, Before that Philip called thee, when thou wast under the fig tree, I saw thee. Nathanael answered and saith unto him, Rabbi, thou art the Son of God. Thou art the King of Israel. Jesus answered and said unto him, Because I said unto thee, I saw thee under the fig tree, Believest thou? Thou shalt see greater things than these, he saith unto him. Verily, verily, I say unto you, Hereafter ye shall see heaven open, and the angels of God ascending, and descending upon the sons of men. The first nature of belief that I would like us to understand and see this evening is found in verses 35 through 39, that God is found of those who seek him. God is found of those who seek him. Within the context of the passage, we come to the next day in our historical count, the first day after John's declaration of Messiah. The previous declaration was the first definitive declaration of Jesus Christ as Messiah. We recall learning about that last week. It would also appear that perhaps many of the disciples of John were not present at the previous day's declaration because John is now declaring again, and it is on this day that the disciples respond. So this next day after John's initial declaration, he again sees Jesus and says, this is the Lamb of God. He is the Christ. He is the Messiah. Recall with me, it was a while back now, the message I preached for a Lord's Supper emphasis service regarding the idea of the Lamb of God. This was a declaration by John the Baptist of substitution. That Jesus Christ was chosen by God to be one, the one, who would save the world from their sins. That was the ministry and purpose of Messiah. All of John's disciples understood that Jesus was the one who John had been preaching throughout his ministry. All the disciples knew when John designated him to be the Lamb of God that this was a designation of the Christ. Now any true disciple of John then, by default would also be a disciple of Jesus. 
since the very beginning of this book of John, the, the Gospel of John, we've understood and seen how Jesus' ministry was not in contradiction to John's. Jesus' ministry was in fact a heightening and a fulfilling of John's ministry, John being a representative of the law, Jesus Christ being a representative of grace and truth as he would come according to uh, John 1.14, John 1.17. And so as we see these things, we recognize that if a person was a true disciple of John, they were as well a true disciple of Jesus. And this is the natural order of truth. See, truth is always consistent. This is why Jesus Christ would declare in John 5.46, For had he believed Moses, ye would have believed me. For he wrote of me. See, Moses even had written of Jesus Christ when Moses was writing way back in the Pentateuch of all the promises that would come to Israel one day. When Moses was writing of that prophet that would come who would be like him, who would speak God's mind, he was writing of Christ. When Moses wrote of the serpent that he framed and then lifted up in the wilderness, he was writing of Christ. And so we see here that truth is consistent. That from generation to generation, though many things may change, truth does not. And so a man who truly believed John and had accepted John's message of true repentance would have, without controversy, accepted the message of Jesus as well. Now this brings us to the record of John's two disciples who heard this declaration regarding Jesus found in verse 37 and following. We will see in a moment that one of the two men is designated as Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. Now the second of the two disciples remains unnamed, which is as curious as it is revealing. Throughout the book there is only really one disciple who remains consistently unnamed. He is known throughout the book as the disciple whom Jesus loved and is identified only in the closing words of the gospel. The same disciple says that he is the one, the disciple whom Jesus loved, declares to be the one who in fact wrote the record of this gospel, the gospel of John. And he writes in such a way that he indicates having been an eyewitness, not only to Jesus' Ministry, but as he writes, we recognize that this author, this penman, was in fact also a witness to John's ministry. It seems likely then, as we put the pieces together, that the disciple speaks of one of these two disciples, but not the other one, that Andrew is listed as one of the two disciples, but the other one remains unnamed, that the gospel writer took great pains to remain unnamed throughout the book, we can deduce then that most likely the second of the two disciples that hears John's declaration is in fact the gospel writer, John the disciple. As these two men began following Jesus, Jesus turned and asked them a question. He said in the middle of verse 38, What seek ye? What seek ye? Literally, the question might be phrased, for what purpose are you following me? Why are you following me? To which the men replied, Rabbi. And notice the parenthetical, which is to say being interpreted master. That gives us a little bit of insight into the gospel writer's target audience. Certainly he was not specifically targeting a Jewish audience if he was interpreting the, the Jewish 
cultural labels. So they said, Rabbi, where dwellest thou? Where dwellest thou? While this question might seem quite insignificant to one as they read through the Gospel of John, it is in fact quite significant in Eastern culture. Eastern culture defined the home in very particular terms. One man would describe the home of the Eastern culture this way. He said, in the East, the home is the defining cultural indicator. Everything that determines who you are and what your future bodes is tied into your heritage and your social standing. Absolutely everything. The man who wrote that is in fact an Easterner himself. And he was describing his own experiences as he, as a man, was defined by his home, by his family by his heritage. And as people thought of him, they could not distinguish between him and his family, between him and his home, between him, where he grew up, and who his parents were. And so to the Hebrew, the home was the place of genuine fellowship. It was a place of cultural distinction. To desire to know where a man lived, to desire to know who a man was, was to desire a genuine relationship with him and to desire an understanding of who he was. Literally, these men were coming up and asking him, Rabbi, who are you? Tell us who you are. Describe yourself to us. Where do you live? Who are you? Once they found him, once these two men who had been actively seeking Messiah through the ministry of John, found him. There was no question. There was no hesitation in their hearts. They wanted a relationship with Jesus right away. The first question they asked him is, Rabbi, where dwellest thou? Rabbi, we want to know you right away. We want to know who you are. Where do you live? So, The nature of unbelief we find here is such as those that earnestly seek the truth. Perhaps this account rings very true in your own experience. Perhaps you were one of those who knew the truth was out there, earnestly sought the truth, and were led directly to the feet of Jesus Christ. As the scriptures testify time and time again, those who seek Christ, those who seek God, will find God. Jeremiah 29, 13 says, And ye shall seek me and find me when ye search me, and when ye shall search for me with all your heart. Matthew 7, 7 and 8, Jesus Christ says, Ask and it shall be given to you, seek and ye shall find. Knock and it shall be opened unto you, for everyone that asketh, Receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth, and to him that knocketh it shall be opened. Revelation twenty two seventeen says, And the Spirit and the bride say, Come, and let him that heareth say, Come, and let him that is a thirst come, and whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. And so we see that just like Andrew and John, two disciples who had followed John the Baptizer in the wilderness, who were actively seeking the Messiah, who longed for his coming. 
and who were eager to find him. Those that seek God find God. Such is the nature of belief. And yet, as we continue in the passage, we see other examples that reveal unto us the nature of belief. In verses 40 through 42, we see second, God uses others to reveal himself. So we saw, first of all, that God is found of those who seek him. But we see as well that God uses others to reveal himself as well. Andrew, one of the two disciples which heard Christ speak, immediately went and found his brother, Simon. Simon was seemingly as well one who earnestly desired Messiah. While he was not out with John in the wilderness that particular day, and the reason for that is somewhat unknown, neither is it profitable to speculate, we see that Andrew tells him, we have found the Messiah. And as Andrew speaks, it is in such a way that it seems like Peter, Simon is, is his name at this point, was also earnestly looking for Messiah. And after Andrew says, we have seen the Messiah, he immediately brings Simon to Jesus. When Jesus saw him, his only recorded words at this meeting were these. Found in verse 42. Thou art Simon, the son of Jonah. Thou shalt be called Cephas. The name Cephas literally means rock or stone. Cephas was an Aramaic word, which literally translated into the Greek would be Petros. Peter, rock. So Cephas was the Hebrew name. Peter was the Greek translation of that Hebrew name. And so it was Jesus that named Simon Peter. Throughout the scriptures, we'll see him referenced as Simon Peter. We'll see him referenced as Peter. As well, we'll see him referenced as Cephas. When we see Simon Peter, when we see Peter, when we see Cephas, it's all the same person. Simon being his actual name, Simon the son of Jonah, Cephas being the name that Jesus Christ gave him, Peter being the Greek translation, well, the English gloss of the Greek name Petros, the name Peter, the name that Jesus Christ gave him. So we understand that Cephas and Peter are the same name, said in two different languages, in a similar way that Elijah in the, in the Hebrew is, in the Greek, Elias. The same way that for a modern example, John in the English is Jose in the Spanish. Same name, just a different gloss based upon the language. While no one at the time would have known why Jesus renamed Simon Peter at their first meeting, this name would take on tremendous significance in the years to come. Peter would become the outspoken leader of the early church and of their evangelistic efforts. He would also be used by God to affirm the new dispensation of grace as it fell upon the Jews, the Samaritans, and then eventually the Gentiles as well. We recognize that Christ named Simon Peter not in some fatalistic declaration that Simon's own capacity to choose to follow Christ had just been overridden by a fatalistic and unavoidable compulsion, but rather that Christ knew well the choices Peter would make 
and how God would use him in the future. And so God gave Peter a name that reflected the way in which Peter would choose to follow Christ. As I meditated upon this name change, my thoughts fell upon my own life in Christ. If I had met Christ in such a way, if someone had brought me to the feet of Jesus Christ, what name might he have given me? Perhaps such speculation is somewhat arbitrary, but it certainly isn't arbitrary to consider the direction that we're heading in this evening and to question whether our relationship with Christ is healthy. Will our Christian life, will your Christian life, be marked by spiritual success as you are used by God to impact the world for His kingdom? Or will your Christian life be marked by one who pursued his own ends, his own pleasures, at the expense of God's glory? So we're speaking of the nature of belief. We see men like Andrew and John, men who were with John the baptizer in the wilderness, men who were actively seeking God, and as soon as they were pointed in the direction, they found Him. Then we see men like Peter, men who God used a man like Andrew to reveal Himself to Peter, to bring Peter to Him. Third, in verses 43 and 44, we see as well that God pursues men. God pursues men. Look at verse 33 with me. The day following, Jesus would go forth into Galilee and findeth Philip. We come now to the following day, the second day after John's initial declaration of Jesus Christ. On this day, the text tells us that Jesus found Philip and said to Philip, follow me. Here, we have a circumstance often testified of in history whereby God has been the initiator of the personal relationship with him. Now, to one degree or another, we would say that God is always the initiator. We understand that it is the Holy Spirit's conviction in the heart of man that initiates this relationship with him. And yet, in this particular case, we see a man who God actively pursues. Now, we know that the ways of God are past finding out. We also know full well that God, having fulfilled all of the requirements for justice for every man when Jesus Christ died on the cross, having fulfilled all of the necessary requirements of revelation of Himself through creation, conscience, and God's Word, is perfectly within His right to pursue some men more than others. And this is what we see in the life of the Apostle Paul. Before he was the Apostle Paul, in fact, his name was Saul on the road to Damascus. And as he was on the road to Damascus, the man Saul was blinded by a great light, the light of the glory of the risen Lord Jesus Christ, and called upon him to follow him. Called upon Saul to follow him. See, God made himself so real to Saul that Saul would have been a fool not to accept the truth. And so God reserves the right, certainly, to pursue men. While God has fulfilled the responsibility to pursue every man, He reserves the right to pursue some men more than others. And in light of such calls, we must understand this as one of two very important principles of God's Word. First, just because God has chosen to reveal Himself to a man in a certain way, does not under any circumstances 
imply that that man has lost the ability to exercise his own will for or against God. God is not making the choice for him. He is simply revealing himself more openly. Second, it is not unjust of God to pursue certain men more than others. If God has given every man the opportunity at salvation, which the scriptures clearly state he has, he is perfectly within his right to pursue some men more than others. And so we see men like Philip. We see men like Saul on the road to Damascus. And we see men who were pursued of God specifically. Men believe through seeking God. Men believe through the call of others. But men believe as they are actually physically sought of God. And then exercise their will towards God as they accept the truth of God's word. One more nature of belief as we finish up this evening. Finally, in verses 45 through 51, we see God also proves himself to men. So God does not just reveal himself to those who are seeking. God does not just reveal himself through others. God does not always seek others out. Sometimes God simply proves himself to men. Our final example rests in a man whose name is Nathaniel. Nathaniel was approached by Philip. Philip, who was sought of God, Jesus Christ found him, said, follow me. Philip followed him. And now Philip seeks out this man, Nathaniel. After having accepted the call of Jesus, Philip immediately went to find his friend. Philip tells him, we found the Christ. The name of the man is Jesus of Nazareth. And notice Nathaniel's response in verse 46. Can there any good thing come out of Nazareth? Can there any good thing come out of Nazareth? See, Philip's response was laced, as you can tell, with sarcasm. Yet there's definitely an element of skepticism here as well. See, a man was defined, as we have just learned, by where he lived, by who he was. And here, Jesus Christ lived in Nazareth, one of the most poor areas in all of Israel. And he was the son to Joseph, a carpenter's son. He was not a man of social status. He was not a man of economic status. This would not be the kind of man that you'd be looking for if you were looking for a king. If you were looking for a savior, you would not go to the slums of Nazareth to find him. And so Nathaniel says, somewhat sarcastically, somewhat skeptically, and somewhat realistically as well, can there any good thing come out of Nazareth? In reply, Philip simply says, Come and see. Come and see. Now we know very little about Nathaniel, except that which Jesus tells us about him. In verse 47, Jesus sees Nathaniel coming to him and saith of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no guile. This is a somewhat significant statement made by Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ here is alluding to the book of Genesis. In Genesis, we recall Jacob. And Jacob, we actually just read it this evening as we were reading in the book of Genesis, in Genesis 27. Jacob, name, his name literally meant supplanter or deceiver. Literally speaking, Jacob's name meant Gaia. It did. And so Nathanael approached Jesus and the Savior looks at Nathanael and says, this is an Israelite indeed 
an Israelite in whom is no Jacob. Do you see the connection? An Israelite in whom there is no guile. Guile being that translation of the name Jacob. He's saying here, this man is all Israel. This man is no Jacob. Now that was quite a compliment. The name of Israel was the name that God had given to Jacob as his covenant name. The one that reflected the time where Jacob submitted himself to, himself to the word of God and therefore assumed upon himself all of the blessings of the covenant. Now, to this blessing, to this compliment that Jesus Christ just gave Nathaniel, an Israelite indeed in whom is no guile, Nathaniel replies, Whence knowest thou me? Picture the scene with me. Philip goes and finds Nathaniel. Jesus Christ is with the other disciples that he has found or that have found him or that have been brought to him. Nathaniel comes up and Jesus Christ looks at him and says, Aha, this man is all Israel. There is no Jacob in him. This man is a man that is devoted in heart and mind to the covenant of God. This is a man that loves God. And Nathaniel, possibly flattered, possibly just continuing with his skepticism, says, do we know each other? Do you know me? Because you're acting like you know me. Nathaniel is not yet convinced, but his statement, Christ's statement, intrigues him. Notice Jesus' response to him. Verse 48. Before that Philip called thee, when thou wast under the fig tree, I saw thee. Now we do not know what Philip was doing under the fig tree that day, nor does it really matter. What matters is that Christ answered Nathanael's question quite directly. He says, Behold, an Israelite in whom is no guile, in whom is no Jacob. Nathanael asks, Do I know you? And Jesus Christ made it clear, I know you, Nathaniel. I know you. This was all that Nathaniel needed to declare him the Son of God, the King of Israel. Nathaniel immediately answered in verse 49, Thou art the Son of God, thou art the King of Israel. See, Jesus is not above proving himself to the honest skeptic. He knows the hearts of men. Throughout his ministry, we'll see skeptics who are not at all honest in their inquiries. And to those men, Jesus will simply confirm them in their unbelief rather than give them the benefit of more proof. And yet you have a man like Nathaniel who was skeptical but desired to find Messiah. He was a man in whom there was no Jacob, no guile. He was a man who was honest with himself and earnestly desiring the truth of God's word. And when he found out that in fact, yes, Jesus did know him, he said, Thou art the Son of God. Thou art the King of Israel. Certainly there can be something good come out of Nazareth. As the chapter closes, Jesus Christ announces that what they have seen is only a shadow of that which is to come. Now, Jesus turns to Nathanael and says, Because I said unto thee, I saw thee under the fig tree, believest thou? Thou shalt see greater things than these. See, belief, Jesus Christ says, is only the beginning of the journey. 
The time when you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that He is the King of Israel, is only the beginning. Regardless of how the belief came about, regardless of whether it was those who responded to John's call, Behold the Lamb of God, or whether it was the one who is found by his brother and says, we found the Messiah, or whether it's the one who the Messiah seeks out, such as Philip, or whether it's the one who is skeptical and yet sees the true power of God. Regardless of how that belief came about, there is little doubt that the day you accepted the truth of God, the day you accepted the gospel of Jesus Christ, was not the end of your knowledge of Christ. It was only the beginning of your knowledge of Christ. But notice then the change in pronoun reference. Look at it with me. Look at me in verse 50. Jesus answered and said unto him, Because I said unto thee. Now, we recall from Scripture that when, in the King James Version, when the translators use the pronouns thee and thou, it's reflecting a singular pronoun, speaking to one person. When the Greek uses you or your, it's reflecting plural pronoun as the, the indication that, that that person is speaking to multiple people. Notice the change in pronoun reference here. Jesus says, because I said unto thee, speaking specifically to Nathaniel, I saw thee under the fig tree, believest thou? Thou shalt see greater things than these. But then we look at verse 51 and Jesus Christ changes his pronoun reference to, to plural. And he said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto you, all of you. He's no longer just speaking to Nathaniel. He's speaking to everyone. Hereafter ye, all of you, shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. And so this pronoun reference changed from second person singular, thee and thou, to second person plural, you and your, indicates to us that Jesus Christ is now giving a promise to all those who have sought him. That from that day onward, they will all see the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Now again, we have a reference here. Again, this reference is an account to that of Jacob and God. Only this one is 20 years prior to Jacob being called Israel. This was the day when Jacob fled from his brother Esau. We'll be reading about it in the next couple of weeks in our evening readings. As he journeyed to Laban, he stopped in Bethel where God approached him. On that night, God affirmed that Jacob would return to the land and Jacob affirmed that God would be his God. And on that same night, Jacob saw the manifest glory of Jehovah God as he looked into the sky and he saw angels ascending and descending upon the ladder, a ladder in heaven. And so what Jesus Christ was telling his disciples here in verse 51, that in the years to come, all of the glory of Jehovah God would be openly manifest to them through Christ. In the words of John 1.18, Jesus was going to declare the Father. Jesus Christ said, if it's just this one little thing that convinces you, I tell you, you're going to see more than this. All of you will see the complete glory of God through me. And with that announcement from Jesus, 
that the best is yet to come, that the glory of God was about to be revealed in flesh to man, we enter next week into the first record of the public ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now as we close this evening, I come back to the nature of belief, particularly in this age where it seems everyone claims to be saved. It's in vogue, it's in fashion to be born again. We need to exercise discernment. We can draw, excuse me, God can draw a man in many ways. And we must never forget that. But we must also never forget that though the draw to salvation might be unique, the means of salvation is, always has been, and always will be, belief on the name of Christ by grace through faith. Let's pray. Father, we thank you.